you have a Bible, you can open up to Judges chapter 8, please. That's where we're going to be tonight. We're actually, the goal is to try to finish up um, the the account with Gideon tonight. And beginning in chapter 9, we move to the period of uh, which Gideon's son takes over and becomes the judge. Or... If he's not the judge, that is, it's um, he'll be he he essentially is serving in leadership, but it's it's not it doesn't last very long. So that's what we'll get next week, Lord willing. But tonight we're going to finish up the account with Gideon, uh, consisting of Judges chapter eight, verse twenty-two through the end, through verse thirty-five. Um, and what we've been seeing in Judges so far is what it's like for God to be king in Israel. He he is the one who's king. There's these judges who serve as rulers, but it is God who is king. It's a different sort of government than we have here in the United States. But I want to be clear as well that God is still actually king. He's king of all, but that's not who we have as our as a government as a nation. Is God as king, and it's it's to our detriment, actually. I would say that that that's the case. Um, but we're not in the old covenant as well. Israel was in the old covenant. It was a covenant that didn't promise salvation. It was a covenant that God entered into Israel with Abraham first, and then all of his sons, and He promised to them blessing and land and peace, and that He would deliver that in so much as they were obedient. But when they were disobedient, then curses would come. So we're very glad that we don't have that structure of of blessing based on our obedience to come and then curse when we're disobedient because quite often we're often very disobedient. Not everybody in Israel wasn't saved. Uh, there were some people that were definitely saved and God was merciful to Israel as a whole, especially because of those who were saved, but not everyone in Israel was saved. The United States um, was based off of and built off of Judeo-Christian principles. If you know, um, we're not going to get into the history tonight. We don't have a lot of I don't want to go too long, especially after you guys warned me of that. But we have a Christian foundation, at least, where the things were set up because of certain beliefs about who God is and who people are. And it's much different than Israel's situation, during, especially during the time of Judges. One of the, the great strengths that USA, United States of America, has had has been the separation of church and state. You've heard of that before, I, I, I take it, I hope. That there's a separation of church and state. And what that means is that the state, the government, isn't allowed to tell the church what we should teach or how we should meet and things like that. That's why all this COVID stuff right now and the restrictions, that's why we've been pushing back against them because the state doesn't actually have that right. There's a separa- separation between church and state. But what we, what that doesn't mean is that there's a separation between God and state. In a very true sense, a real way, that God is still the one who is over the United States of America. He is God. He is the creator of all things. Everything happens according to the counsel of his will. Uh, there's nothing that happens in the universe that he doesn't know about. That's not part of his plan and his purposes. And so even if you think of us now as Christians, what what is our job according to Jesus in the world? He right before he 
um, ascended to heaven, he gave the disciples what's called the Great Commission. And remember what he says? He says, all authority in heaven and on earth, in heaven and on earth, Jesus has authority, has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. So in, in a very real sense, all every nation, the United States is a nation. We're to be making dis- Christians or to be making disciples out of the people who live there. And if you are a disciple of Christ, is not God your master? Is not God your king? Of course, right? And God is even king and lord over those who reject him. They don't see it, but uh, he's still the, the God over them. Um, there are many texts about nations, too. If you read throughout the Old Testament, uh, especially in the Psalms, it speaks a lot about God ruling over all the nations. We'll look at some of those passages tonight even as well. But one of the major problems that we have in our culture today, one of the reasons why we're in the position that we are in, and which is interesting if you think about kind of the struggles that we've been seeing in Judges, the things that people do, a lot of it comes with their disregard of, of Yahweh, their desire to um, do what they want to do rather than what God intends them to do. And the same problem is uh, being experienced by us here as well, too. So what I was wanting to say is that one of the big problems in our culture today is that we have been conditioned to not talk about politics and religion. We have been, you know, you you might have heard before, like the, the one, the two things you don't talk about with other people is our politics and religion, or you don't mix the two. And that's really part of the reason why we're in the position that we are now as a, as a, as a nation, um, because we have so divorced Christianity from our politics, from government. And that's not the way that it should be. That's not, that's not having a separation of church and state. Now what we're talking about is having a separation of God and state. Um, the Bible is filled with passages on politics, isn't it? Uh, the, the stuff we've been reading through judges, it's political. All of it's political. God is their king or they're, or he's not. And they're not, or he is always their king, but they're living as if he's not. What about in, um, the New Testament when, John the Baptist is confronting Herod because he's living immoral. And then what happens with John the Baptist? Gets He loses his head, right, because of the woman's um, daughter that he was having an affair with. Uh, in Romans, we're instructed how to I- interact with the government. The Apostle Paul goes before the Roman council a number of different times. There, There is actually no separating politics from Christianity. They, they have to be understood together, and we don't want to be confused thinking that politics are going to save anybody. Of course not. Even if we were to put in place here in America today all laws that were founded upon Christian morals and ethics, it wouldn't save anybody, right? That's not what saves anybody. It would be good if we did so because we know that God's law is good, but those that's not what saves anybody at all. The gospel is what saves people. So we want to not be uh, confused about that, that it is Christ and what he has done. That is the only means of salvation for people. And even if we were to just put in place these good laws, these good rules, it wouldn't change a person's heart. The only thing that could change a person's heart is the gospel. It's, it's a person being made aware of their sins so that they might repent 
and then trust in Christ who has lived in their stead and then died for their sins and then was resurrected for their justification. But when it comes to how we will live, we really only have two choices. It's what's called theonomy or it's autonomy. Now, there's a version of theonomy that we don't want to think about because it's, it's complex and a lot of people uh, misapply I think what scripture makes clear and, and teaches is, but the, you can do that with any doctrine. But theonomy, all of this, all it means is God's law. Theos, God, nomos, law. So theonomy. Do we want to live by God's law or autonomy? Auto, like ourselves, are self-governed. So, and autonomy is not always bad. For example, uh, Baptist churches are autonomous churches. That means that we don't have another church over us that could command us to tell us what to do. But when it comes down to the way that we want to live our life, do we want to live by God's law or do we want to live by our own law? And that comes down to be the exact uh, sort of problem that we see happening in Judges over and over and over again. And the reality is that for all people, everywhere, in every nation, it is better to be under theonomy. It is, God knows us better than we know ourselves. Remember uh, our memory verse for this month? Proverbs 16.9. Does anybody have it? I know the middle school boys know it. We just talked about it. Yeah. In the ESV, it says, a man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his path. So humans, man's heart, it's that sort of thing. Um, it's good that we are not left to ourselves all the time. Because the scripture is clear that our hearts are deceitful. They are wicked. Uh, they lead us into selfish behaviors and, and all sorts of trouble. Psalm 37 would instruct us to delight ourselves in the Lord, and he'll give you the desires of your heart. But that's putting God first, right? If you're delighting yourself in the Lord, at that point, then he'll give you the desires of your heart. But if we pull it back and we consider what God says in Proverbs 16:9, that our heart, a man's heart plans his, his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. We should be glad that God is sovereignly still working, even though many people are in rebellion to him. Many people are choosing to be autonomous rather than being under God's law. So again, our text is going to deal with this very thing tonight. So let's read Judges in chapter 8, and if you want to follow along, and then we'll, um, we'll pray after we read. So the word of the Lord beginning at verse 22 in chapter 8. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson, also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And Gideon said to them, Let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. Ishmaelites are or the, the Abraham's first son. They descended from them. Verse 25, And they answered, We will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak. 
and every man threw it in the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. And Gideon made an ephod, and excuse me, an ephod of it, and put it in his city in Ophrah. And all Israel whored after it there. It became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more. And the land had rest forty years in the days of Gideon. Verse 29, Jerubbabel, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had seventy sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son. And he called his name Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash's father at Ophrah, the Abezrites. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Berith their god. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubal, that is, Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. That ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and sufficient word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we need you. We praise you for your word. And we thank you that we have been able to consider so much of Gideon's life and the things that you have taught us through through it so far. And we pray that tonight you would help us to grow in our faith and in that our belief and our trust in you, that we might live lives that are faithful and glorifying to you. Lord, we see how fast and how easy it is for people to return to their own ways, even after the events that we've that you worked through Gideon. And so help us to not be like those people, even though our hearts are prone to be that way. Lord, help us instead to desire uh, your rule over us. Give us grace, Lord. We, we need it, and we thank you that you are merciful and faithful all in Christ towards uh, those that have trusted in him. We pray, pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so that's how Gideon's life ends up. So we just read basically what happens toward the end of his life, all the way up through his death. If you remember uh, before this, you know, God has delivered the Israelites from the Midianites. So we learn here in this section that the Midianites actually descended from Ishmael, from Abraham's other son. So the Midianites are Ishmaelites. And um, up to this point, uh, Gideon has made a number of good decisions and a number of bad decisions, right? He's we've seen he's both, you know, we might say it in the way of like Martin Luther, where he talked about how Christians were both saint and sinner. In other words, that people would do well and they'd also do really bad. And we've seen him do well, like for example, when he um, when he was dealing with the Ephraimites, and he did really well and he was humble. But then right after that, when he would uh, engage with the people of Gad, he was ruthless to them. He was without mercy towards them. And so Gideon has, you know, these high moments and he has these lower moments as well. And we see some of that more towards the end of his life, too. But here at this point now, they have victory. They have uh, the, the kings from the Midianites were killed. Remember the way that 
he did that was pretty violent. Um, well, not the the people of Gad was pretty violent the way that he got revenge on them. The Midianite kings he just killed with the sword because his younger son didn't want to do it himself, so he did it himself. But now the enemies that were purging Israel every seven years are done away with, and the the people now instead of honoring God for the great work that has been done, they honor they want to honor Gideon. And so look what they do. Look what their desire is in verse 22. They tell Gideon to rule over us and your son and your grandson. What is that called? Normally. Be like a dynasty, right? Like if, if you if, – we don't have that here in the United States, right? So it's not like uh, President Trump was the last president. Now it's not his son Eric that's the president, right? We voted in somebody – another person got voted in. Whether or not that vote was legitimate or not, we can debate that later. <laughs> um, we have a, a system of voting. So, but like in other countries, um, like China, for example, or, or Korea, it's hereditary. Uh, that's how it was. It's how it was for many places. It's how it is. How it was even in England with the crown, right, and, and the, the king and the queen there. And so, what Israel wanted was that sort of a system over them. Remember, part of their problem here in Judges is that they were supposed to move into Canaan to this land that God promised them and then get the Canaanites out. They're supposed to push them out, drive them out. We talked about that a few months back when we first started this, but they didn't do a good job at that. And so what happens to the Israelites is instead of them being a light to the world and having this little this plot of land that's supposed to represent and be a type of the new heavens and the new earth where it's God is ruling it perfectly and there's blessing upon blessing for people. It's, it never reaches that height, that pinnacle because the Israelites themselves aren't all born again and they often indulge their sin. And since they didn't kick everybody out, the surrounding areas started influencing them. Remember we call it the Canaanization of Israel. And so here's another example of their Canaanization. They were wanting to have the same sort of governmental structure that the nations around them had, where there was this mighty man who would then have children, and then so he would reign, and then his children would succeed him, and so on and so on. And that's not the best plan. Uh, God was already their king. No other nation, even though, like I said earlier, Every, it is proper to understand that every person in the world is under God. He is the one who is the king of all. Uh, let's, let's open up your Bible, for example, to uh, Psalm 46 or Psalm 47. God is the one who rules all things. He raises up kings and he tears them down. Look at an example of that as well, too. Psalm 47, 6-7 says this. It says, sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our king, sing praises, for God is king of all the earth. Sing praises of the psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. So that's written in the time of, says the sons of Korah wrote that. That's written a little bit after the time of Judges. But even at that point, God was not in a covenant with the whole world, right? 
the, he was in the old covenant with Israel. They were commanded to be a light to the nations. They, um, they were going to be, they were Yahweh's servant and God was going to bring his son, uh, the redeemer through them. But even though God's word wasn't disseminated in China, it wasn't disseminated in the North America and South America, it is still right to acknowledge that God was king over all the earth, over all the nations. But he was specifically Israel's king because he had entered into a covenant with them. He had revealed himself to them. God was their king in a specific sense because he they knew his word and they knew what... Um, he desired from them. Let me read to you Exodus 19. This is right before Moses is given the Ten Commandments, right? So that, that's Exodus 20. So this is the beginning of the Mosaic Covenant and in the, the revealing of it to Moses at least. So this is Exodus 19, 5 through 6. God says to Moses and to all of Israel in that regard, it says, now therefore, well, let me back up to verse 4. Verse 4 says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. What's he talking about? The Exodus. The Exodus, the way that he saved Israel and redeemed Israel out of Egypt, right? He, he brought them out of slavery and bondage into liberty and to a part of his family. And so... Uh, you just made me have a flashback to winter Sorry. camp. It's all right. <laughs> it's a, it's a, it, no, it's, you're good. Um, and so the point being that there, what he did to Israel as a nation was a, a, a type of you know the redemption that he applies to anyone who would trust in his son. That freedom out of slavery and bondage, but for us, out, for us now, it's slavery and bondage to uh, to sin and to death. And then he, he saves us in Christ, redeems us from that, and gives us freedom. And, he, of course, he still also um, is in a covenant with us, the new covenant, not the old covenant. But anyways, verse 5. So the context of redemption, verse 5, he says, Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. Okay, so there you have it again. All the earth is his, but Israel is different. Verse 6, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the people of Israel. Not a whole lot different than like what Peter says in the New Testament, right? That we are a royal priesthood. So Israel served as that type of a role. Israel was a type even of the church. And the church obviously is supposed to, to raise the banner of Christ to be a, a salt and light to the whole world, not just the surrounding area around Canaan. But God was their king already. He was their redeemer. He was their liver. It's true that God is king over the whole world. God is over all. Even in, even in places where people live in utter rebellion to God, God is not like, it's not like he's not physically reigning over them. He is, and he is allowing them for in his purposes to be in rebellion. But God is still ruling them. And so God is specifically Israel's king. He says there that if you will, that there'll be his treasured possession among all peoples, even though the earth is all his. And we think about it as well, too. The Israelites, they, in Judges 8, they knew that. They, they should have known it, at least. But they also knew that God was 
displaying himself as the king because he was leading them into battle. He was using these judges. That's what a king would do, especially during this period of time. Remember, that's why Gideon was so bent on capturing Ziba. And uh, let me go back to Judges here. Why, yeah, while Gideon was so um, determined to capture Ziba and Zalmanah because they were the kings. Once you had defeated them, they were the ones who were leading the army. Well, it was God who was leading the Israelites into battle. Even in the battle with Gideon and his people, they didn't even have to do uh, anything, right? I mean, God set it up so that he that so they were whittled down, whittled down to 300 people, and then he had them all hold clay uh, jars and torches in their hand and then God worked it so that the Midianites got scared and they hurt themselves and they attacked themselves whereas these 300 people defeated 150,000 I think is what it was or 120,000 Midianites so it was it was a work of God God was the one leading the battle he did it with Deborah God uh, used Deborah as a judge he used Shamgar as a judge he used Ehud he was off me all, but it was always in every situation that we've read so far, it's always been God leading them. God is their king. We, uh, Daniela chose uh, Hebrews 1 this evening when we were doing, um, when we were singing in between the songs, we read Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. I wanted to look at that. as well verse we'll start at one but verse three is what is the point that i want us to consider when we think of god being the king and, and god being jesus specifically so verse one long ago at many times in many ways god spoke to our fathers by the prophets but in these last days he's spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things, from whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So God is reigning, right? Jesus is now reigning with him bodily. Our, our the mediator, our redeemer, God the Son eternally has a body now, and he's reigning with God the Father. He sat down with him. So God was has always been the king. He was the king of Israel back then. He was the, Israel was blessed at that point to have God specifically as their king. Yet they often chose to, to not have God's um, kingship over them. So the people choose to be like the Canaanites rather than to be what God gave them an opportunity to be, to choose what is good. In the Old Covenant, they had the choice to, to obey or to disobey. Verse 23, look at Gideon's response to this. Gideon get all excited and say, oh, I can't wait to be a king. Like I'm so glad I just had this victory over battle over the Midianites in battle. I deserve to be the king. It's not what he says. Gideon says to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. So Gideon makes a wise choice. Gideon chooses theonomy. He says, I, he says, I want God's law, not my law, to be over you guys. It is better to have God as a king than a person. A person is, well, if we think about our verse again, you know, a man plans, a man's heart plans his steps. And we know that the heart, especially for one who's not saved, is deceitful and wicked. Uh, it can't, it's not to be trusted. 
But God is not like that. Go Exodus 34 says about the Lord. The Lord, the Lord is a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, the children's children to the third and fourth generations. God is righteous. God is just. He's not like a man. God doesn't need anything in this world, right? He doesn't, he doesn't need things, but a, a human king would need things, would desire things. And so it was much better for Israel to have God as their king. And Gideon gets that for now, at least, at least in the way he, he at least verbalizes it. That's not what Israel always does, though. Israel's pretty persistent on this. If we looked at 1 Samuel, turn over to the book right after Judges. 1 Samuel chapter 8. That's why it's a little bit easier to just have a paper Bible and your phone. It's harder to probably change in your phone, I think, but it's okay. Um, so in 1 Samuel chapter 8, Israel demands a king. And God, um, Sam, God is going to let them finally have what they want at this point because that's part of God's plan to bring the Messiah eventually as well too. He's going to eventually enter into a covenant with David. But here's Samuel, um, who is kind of serving as the judge at this time, although he's more of the priest as well. We talked about him in Sunday school, actually. So at verse 6, right before that in verse 5, it says, Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Again, Israel wants to just – Israel has been given what all the other nations actually need. They have, they have the word of God revealed to them. God is fighting for them, and yet they want to be like all the other nations who don't have that. So verse 6 says, But the thing displeased Samuel, and they said, Give us a king to judge us. Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of your people, all they say, for they have not rejected you, but they've rejected me from being king over them. It's the same thing the Israelites were doing in Judges chapter 8 as well. They're rejecting God from being king over them, and they want Gideon to be their king. Um, if we were to keep on reading... Uh, here, down, look at verse 10, verse 11. This is the type of thing that a, an earthly king is going to demand from them. It says, He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots, to be his horsemen, and to run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands of commanders of officers and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He'll take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He'll take the tenth of your grain and your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. So now there's going to be a tax on them. He'll give your male servant, your female servants, and your best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He'll take a tenth of your flock and you shall be his slaves. And that day you shall cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourself. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. It's much better to have God as their king than it is an earthly king. And if we were to fast forward into today... It's much worse than that for us. We give way more than just 10% in taxes. If you think about property tax and all the types of different taxes that we have, it, the system that we are in is not as good as the system that God would have set up. The reality, though, is um, God is working through all of this. Even in Isaiah, we'd read like in Isaiah 10, where he is he raises up kings in Assyria or in Isaiah 42. He raises up Cyrus to accomplish his will. So God is working all things together for his good, for the good of those who love him are called according to the purpose and for his glory. But the best thing that we can have is to acknowledge that God is the king and that we need his law. 
Now, Gideon makes a wise move. He says, I'm going to have, I'm not going to rule you. God is going to rule you. But then in verses 24 through 27, Gideon shows that he's not just operating in wisdom. He also makes foolish decisions as well. So in 24 to 27, he says, let me make a request of you. He says to them, everyone gave me the earrings from the spoil. They all had gold earrings. So they all willingly gave them. Of course they willingly gave them. They just wanted him to be their king. So of course they you know, would do whatever he said. Came out to be um, 1,700 7, shekels of gold. That ends up to about 42 pounds of gold. Okay. And I did the math. It's two hundred sixty-five pounds. I read that it was forty-two pounds. I'll take your word for it. So two. So. I mean, I couldn't know that. I I I didn't do the math. I just saw in a commentary that it said forty. That that read up to forty-two pounds. I think MacArthur's um said it ended up being forty-two pounds. But anyways, I mean that's still that's a significant amount of gold. Forty-two pounds to two hundred pounds somewhere around there. Um. So if, and of course you know the people willingly gave it. They wanted get. They wanted Gideon to be a king. And so actually when Gideon ask, asking for that, he's kind of acting like a king would, would act, right? He's demanding something from them. It's not really his right to do that. John MacArthur says this on this section. He says, this was certainly a sad end to Gideon's influence. So about the rest of this 24 to 27, essentially, 24 to the end. He says, this was certainly a sad end to Gideon's influence as he, perhaps in an expression of pride, sought to lift himself up in the eyes of his people. Gideon intended nothing more than to make a breast piece, as David did, to indicate civil, not priestly rule. It was never intended to set up idolatrous worship, but to be a symbol of civil power. There is no evil was intended to be noted from the subduing of Midian. Um, the quietness from wars, verse 28, and the fact that idolatry came after Gideon's death, verse 33, as well as commendation of Gideon, verse 35. So John MacArthur thinks that Gideon really didn't do anything wrong in that. I don't know if John MacArthur is actually right in that. Um, Whenever we see an, an, an ephod, an ephod, it has to do with priestly activity. If um, Even in David's case in 1 Chronicles, 1 Chronicles 12, what was happening at that point, and this will be interesting because of what we just studied in Sunday school. In 1 Chronicles 12, David is now the king, and they're bringing the ark back. What happened? Remember what happened with the ark on Sunday? They, they, the Israelites took it out to the to battle with the Philistines and then like as some sort of like magic tool that they could use to have power over them rather than repenting from their sin. And it just and it ended up getting stolen. Well, finally, after then, the Philistines gave it back to a town of Israel, but they just left it there because um, God even killed. Well, depending on what translation you have, 70,000 or, or 70 people or 50,000 people, depending on what translation you're reading out of. Um and so finally now David is the king and he's bringing the ark back. And so the priests are with him and they're, they're going, they're going like every seven steps and they're, and they're sacrificing animals. And David's wearing a linen ephod. That's a, a priestly garment. If you think back to the first time you read about it, Ethel, it was back in Exodus, um, I think chapter 28, where it talks about this, the garment that Aaron would wear. And so it's this priestly thing. So it's a religious item, in other words. And so now Gideon's not the one wearing it, right? We read that he set it up in his city. But again, Gideon now has a city. And he makes this landmark that people come and they idolize it. They, they commit sin. They turn away from God. And they look to this thing as a 
symbol of power rather than having their trust in God. So no matter um, what we do for God, even if it's just the mundane, ordinary things, friends, we have to remember to be humble. Gideon, for a moment, let pride swell up in him. And so he has them do something and he makes something and then he sets it up as a monument to maybe maybe we can give him the benefit of the doubt and say it's a monument to what God did through him. Nevertheless, it becomes a stumbling block. We read not only to the people, but also to Gideon as, as well. And so you see the danger of not um, of not being humble, I hope. In 1 Timothy 6, the Apostle Paul warns us of many of the same things that Gideon brought upon Israel. He speaks of men who teach another doctrine, which does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. Ironically, Gideon did this very thing when he when he built the, the ephod and took he ends up taking a Canaanite wife, the, the daughter of a Shechem, is what he was what we read later on here in this chapter. Um, and it becomes a violation of God's commandments. What's more, Gideon did not heed the important principle behind God, Paul's words in verses six through ten. So this is First Timothy chapter six. He says. Now there is great gain and godliness with contentment, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we'll be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. That's exactly what Gideon did takes their gold. He has the gold from the camels of those kings. He sets himself up. Even though he says he doesn't want to be their king, he acts like a king. He even ends up having, we read, 70 children with multiple wives. Normal folks don't do that. That's Kings would do that type of a thing. So he ends up start, starting to live like a king, even though he doesn't want to. Gideon loved his power, and he used his position of authority to do pretty much anything that he wanted to do, like creating this this ephod, uh, and he relocated the center of Israel to his town, his hometown, and essentially started a dynasty. Because right? we're going to see in chapter 9 that it's Ab- Abimelech is the one who is focused here at, at that point. So just as Paul warns us that Gideon warns, warns us that riches can be a snare to us, riches seem to have been a snare to Gideon as well. And Gideon is an example to us then. He's just like us. He's a perfect example of how power corrupts and how the blessings of God can become a snare to us if we forget the source and the purpose of those gifts. Gideon is the perfect example for us to not take for granted what God is doing for us. We need to remember that God is the one who gives. We are the one who who simply want to follow God. God works in our lives. We don't work for ourselves. And then the closing of the section, it's interesting he calls him Jerubbabel. We haven't heard that name for maybe a whole chapter, I think, since chapter 7. But remember, it has to do with Gideon um, being tested by Baal, because Gideon tore down the statues of Baal. And so we see that the people end up giving themselves over to Baal worship again. So I think that's the reason why Gideon is referred to as Jerubbabel there again. And it sets up the stage for the next turn in Israel's story. As good as Gideon was... At some points, he didn't point the people to their Lord, which is what you want to do if you are following God. As soon as Gideon died, we read that the people turned from the Lord, right? 
hopefully it would be said of us when we die, you know, people that we have influence over, that they don't just automatically turn to their own things because we don't want to be the center of attention, right? That's that's not what we want as Christians. We don't want all the, the focus, the power to be on us. We want it to be on God. Christ um, is who matters. And, you know, no doubt Gideon confessed the truth when he stated to his fellow Israelites that the Lord will rule over you. But then Gideon went and acted like a king. Like the rest of Israel judges, uh, Gideon is both saint and sinner. And if we contrast that to our blessed Savior, Jesus, whom Paul says humbly stood before Pilate, a Roman bureaucrat, and he gave, Jesus gave a good confession. Jesus could have summoned a legion of angels to defend himself. He could have brought down the palace on Pilate's head. But no, Jesus humbled himself to fulfill God's commandments. And he even went to the cross so that we could be saved from our sins. It was this same Jesus who was the Lord who ruled over Israel in the days of Gideon. It was the same king who would lay down his life for our sins and then was raised from the dead. Friends, this Jesus is the Lord that rules over you. He's the, he's the Lord and he's ruling over people even who don't come to church. He's still Lord over them, but we, have the, we are privileged to know like Israel was his word now. We, he's given to us light that we might know him and, and might obey out of love not to earn salvation, but because of what he's done. Jesus both made the, the good confession and then he fulfilled all righteousness through his perfect obedience. His law is good and perfect. It's good for all. Theonomy is better than autonomy. So therefore, with Paul, let us confess that Jesus is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in the unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. He is the image of the invisible God. So to him be honor and eternal dominion. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your rule over us. We know that in a very real sense, in the truest possible sense, you are ruling over all people, even people who believe themselves to be autonomous, even people who think, God, that you don't exist, even those who are atheists. We know that you are ruling over them as well. But we thank you that you have shown us the truth of yourself, so that we might recognize your your ruling hand in our lives and we might seek to follow you. Help us to be obedient to you. Help us to, to be humble so that pride doesn't grow up in us, so that we end up trying to pursue our own ways. We know that your ways are better than our ways. They are higher than our ways. So help us, Lord, to follow you. You are, you are so worthy of adoration and of loyalty. Though our, our own flesh certainly desires to be pleasing to itself. Give us grace that we may not indulge that desire. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.